Welcome to The Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner, and this is episode 77. Hi, friends, and welcome. Thank you so much to everyone who has left a review for Lies of the Magpie on Amazon or on Goodreads. Those reviews help me as a brand new author establish credibility and show audience and readership so that bookstores and libraries can be assured that stocking Lies of the Magpie on their shelves will be a good investment. So thank you for taking the time to go to Amazon and to go to Goodreads and leave your review. Also, one other announcement, you are invited to join me every Thursday, 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time for my Facebook Live Magpie Chat. Did you know that I originally began writing Lies of the Magpie as a self-help book with the principles and lessons and tools that I'd learned in losing my identity and motherhood and struggling to recover from postpartum depression, chronic illness, autoimmune disease? And then I decided that I really wanted to just let the story speak for itself. And so I changed the point of view, the voice from self-help to narrative storytelling. However, all those self-help principles are still in there, still hidden in those chapters. And so each week I'm taking one chapter and sharing the self-help principle, the lesson I learned that is the theme of that chapter. The book has 48 chapters plus a prologue and an epilogue, so 50 chapters. So it's going to take a year to do this. So 50 chapters, one chapter a week. We started with the prologue last week. And the lesson was that being a mother is enough, that being a mother is a job. So whether you have another job outside of mothering or whether mothering is your full-time gig, it counts. Mothering work is work. And so as women, we can and we need to own that, that we own our mothering work. When people ask us what we do, we can mention our other jobs, but don't skip over the mothering work also. I am a mother. Mothering is an occupation. Mothering is work. Mothering is a real job. So that was the lesson from the prologue. And you can join me this Thursday for my discussion about the lesson from chapter one. So if you've finished Lies of the Magpie already and you want to go back in, go back through it and you can go chapter by chapter a little more slowly and really soak in those self-help principles. If you haven't gotten your copy of Lies of the Magpie and want to, this is a great time. You can get started. You can read one chapter a week if you just really want to take your time and pace yourself. That works. Or you can read it all in one sitting and then go back through and take one chapter a week with me really delving in. So I wanted to let you know about that. And that is all my friends. On that note, we will dive into today's free sample chapters of the audio version of Lies of the Magpie. Today we have chapter 26 and 27. Chapter 26 is entitled Photoshop. This is a very interesting chapter. I am really excited for the Magpie chat Facebook discussion about this one because I think it has a really powerful lesson for everyone, men, women, children, everyone. Chapter 27 is titled Midnight Visit. This chapter is, it's a hard chapter, but it's a good chapter. I had several beta readers that this was their favorite chapter. This was a key point to them in the book. And 
as you'll read, it was definitely a key turning point for me in my journey. And I think that's all of the setup that I want to give you to not spoil anything. So with that, I present Lies of the Magpie, chapters 26 and 27. Chapter 26, Photoshop. Over the next months, I live a modified version of Newton's Law of Inertia, which goes something like this. A mother in motion must keep moving because if she stops or sits down, she will immediately fall asleep. The September and October print deadlines come and go. My memory of those months consists of blurry images of Aaron or me pulling into our driveway and hastily exchanging keys for children, like the baton pass on a relay team. The new runner backs out and screeches down the road, leaving exhaust fumes and skid marks on the street called Memory Lane. Now we are hustling to meet the November issue cutoff. The due date of October 17th looms over our house like a ponderous dark taskmaster. One might expect our organization and implementation to have significantly improved by this, our sixth publication deadline, but I'm questioning whether, come Monday, we'll have a magazine at all. The difference this month is that the kids have been out of school on a two-week fall break. My knees barely rolled under my desk the first day of school vacation when various tiny heads poked through the office door. We want to go swimming. Can we ride our bikes to the park? I can't reach the finger paint. Will you help us build the train set? For the rest of fall break, either I'm in the office feeling guilty that I should be spending time with the kids, or I'm spending time with the kids feeling guilty that I should be getting magazine work done in the office. I flip from one task to another without finishing anything. Kate was scheduled for a tonsillectomy over fall break at Del Webb Hospital, but the billing administrator called about a glitch with our insurance. Her surgery is indefinitely postponed while we file an appeal, because I need more paperwork like I need a root canal. Here I sit trying to design an ad for Angel's house cleaning service. I met Angel at the Chamber of Commerce business breakfast. She is trying to build her clientele with no advertising budget, and I need a maid. Bob has agreed to let us trade an ad for bi-monthly house cleaning. In the afternoon, Laya sits on my office desk flipping through pages of sample ads when she notices the name of a saved computer file. What's this? Laya asks, clicking a folder labeled Malia before and after. Oh, it's nothing, I said, even though I knew exactly what was in the file. Aaron had shown me, several nights ago, the new photo editing skills he'd learned from a Photoshop tutorial. Show me, I want to see. Laya is so curious. No time tonight. I need to focus and finish Angel's ad, then get the kids through the bath. It will only take a minute. My mouse double-clicks the file and the screen fills with side-by-side -side images of me, cropped from a family photo. The photo has been zoomed in, magnifying my face from the neck up. Though both images are the exact same photo, there is a stark contrast between the woman on the left and the woman on the right. Wow, what tool did Aaron use to cover your pregnancy rash? You can't see it at all, Laya remarks. Clicking the history button, Laya follows the step-by-step -step process required to erase my blotchy skin and remove the dark circles beneath my eyes. Aaron has thickened my eyelashes and defined my lips with an outline and color fill. In the second image, my red acne bumps are gone. 
Laia continues clicking, observing how magically the large mole on my neck disappears. Staring at the differences between my own pocked face and the buttercream complexion of the photoshopped version of me, it's impossible to ignore the many ways I fall short of perfection. The eyes of the woman in the improved photo stare at me. They are my eyes, but they aren't. My eyes are constantly streaked with red. This woman's eyes are white and clear, no sign of fatigue. Using skin filters, red eye removal, teeth whitening, and blur tools, Erin has used Photoshop to erase all my flaws. It's as if I'm seeing all the things Erin would change about me if he were given a magic wand. If only it were so easy in real life. I drag the Photoshop paintbrush tool over the images, scribbling red lines over both faces. Dropping my head into my hands, I close my eyes and rub my temples. So much work to do. Focus. But the crushing walls of the office are closing in on me in the same way my ribs are crushing my lungs. Laia shadows me as I flee the office, followed by an ominous sense of deja vu. Opening the heavy sliding glass door to our backyard, I see the results of telling the kids to go outside to play. Kate and Tanner have convinced Danny to pull the heavy garden hose into the sandbox and turn on the water for mud fun. I don't have the energy to wash them for dinner. Their sand-coated legs and my white carpet are not a good combination. So I carry paper plates of spaghetti outside and they eat picnic style on the grass. Rolling out a blanket on the grass for Jack consumes the rest of my strength. I collapse on my back next to him and watch as he kicks his feet and chews his hands while we gaze at birds in our palm trees. Jack is four months old. I never hold him. I juggle him. Thank goodness for breastfeeding or I might never pick him up. And lately, Tanner has been acting up. He's starved for attention during the day because I only come out of the office long enough to slice his microwaved hot dog and lock him in his room for nap time without a story. Tanner sneaks up behind Danny and dumps a bucket of wet sand over his head. The sun sets and I herd the trio out of the sandbox, strip them naked, spray them with the hose, and let them take their bath in the hot tub. Eventually, there is more water on the patio than in the jacuzzi. Hey guys, time to get out, I shout. Kate does a Power Ranger spin move into the towel I'm holding, her foot slicing my arm and drawing blood. My hand grabs her ankle. Her toenails are so long they could carve our Halloween jack-o'-lanterns. Run inside and get your pajamas on, all of you. Then meet me on the couch for nail clipping. Their teachers must think they're neglected. Danny and Kate whoop and holler and race each other inside. Tanner toddles after, trying to keep up. His towel falls, the dimples in his full moon jiggle as he runs. The jacuzzi cover feels heavier than normal. Usually a one-hand job, tonight it requires both my arms and a heave from my legs to lift, pull, unfold, and lock down the lid before lifting the wooden stairs on top. Our little garden hose resists my pulling and dragging. It feels as cumbersome, bulky, and awkward as a python. In my bathroom, I mean to fetch the nail clippers, but the wooden hamper box in my closet beckons me to sit down. The box is small, yet tonight its hard lid is inviting. I drop onto the seat and do nothing but sit. From the boys' room, I hear that the mud bathers have launched a jumping-on-the-bed tournament. What are you doing? 
Aaron asks, coming in the bathroom behind me. I don't know. I can't seem to move. I'm not injured. My body isn't broken or bleeding, other than the toenail gouging courtesy of Kate. But standing seems to require a Herculean strength beyond my ability. My chest pounds with the thump-thump that our washing machine makes when it struggles to spin a load of beach towels. I'm so tired. I want Aaron to say how I deserve to be tired, how I work myself to the bone, how he wishes I would slow down. Instead, he says, why? Silence is my response. So Aaron washes his hands and walks out of the bathroom. Can't he see how exhausted I am? Turning around to the closet mirror, I expect to see the skeletal shadow of a sickly woman. That's how I feel. And I wonder how Aaron could walk past so unfeelingly when I'm on the brink of collapse. Instead, the woman in the mirror looks exactly like the normal me, with red acne bumps, pregnancy rash, red eyes, and the mole on my neck. I look somewhat unkempt, but certainly not appearing to need medical attention. The sound of Aaron's footsteps go straight back to the office, walking past the kids' bedroom, doing nothing about the full-out brawl happening within. From the opening and closing of doors, I can tell that Kate is bringing pillows from her room. In frustration, I fling the nail clippers at the bathroom wall and fold in half, putting my face between my legs and using my knees to tighten the grip of my hands, squeezing my head, trying to hold it all together. A loud thunk from the bedroom brings me back to reality. The kids are pushing the mattress off the bed, preparing to make a super slide. Mustering strength from somewhere, I lift my body off the hamper box and go to assess the damage. The kids are all stark naked, launching themselves off the bed onto pillows they've gathered from every room. I clap my hands. Three bare bodies run past me for the bathroom. My shoulder pushes the mattress onto its box spring. The sheets have to be retucked. After barking out orders to get pajamas on, teeth brushed, and head straight to bed, I pass the office and see Aaron sorting through the mounds of mail on my desk. Isn't sorting the mail your thing? Lya tags along. It is, but I don't have the energy to haggle with Aaron tonight about how long I let the mail go unopened. And tackling the kitchen disaster is just one of the many things I have to do tonight before I can go to sleep. The kitchen becomes a studio of bangs, clanks, and crashes as toys are tossed in the cupboards, plates loaded in the dishwasher, the growl of the vacuum, and water running for mopping. Don't come out here, I call down the hall to Aaron. The floor will be wet. I hear a light okay from the office. Once the mop is wrung out, my feet slide on paper towels down the hall to the office. While the floor dries, I can finally show Aaron the draw-up for a new salon ad. My computer screen has just woken up when Aaron clicks off his computer. Good night. He walks past, not stopping to kiss me. Is he mad at you tonight? Laya asks. I don't know. I think he's frustrated with me. He's always following me, cleaning up the messes I leave, doing the things I haven't gotten around to. I think it annoys him that I'm always running so far behind. He doesn't look at you the way he used to in college. When we were engaged, Aaron acted like he'd won the future wife jackpot. But it didn't take long for him to discover he'd gotten a lemon. 
Lyon and I often question if he stays with me out of duty. If Aaron weren't a religious man bound by the covenant of marriage, would he trade me in for a better model? With Aaron off to bed, I work on the ad myself, but my brain is fuzzy. After 20 minutes, I have a rectangle and a few wavy lines. Lyon appears over my shoulder. Aaron would have finished this ad by now, and it would look a lot more professional than that. I kick my chair away from the desk and pound my head. Are you quitting? Laya asks. I thought you wanted to learn ad design so you could take over and Aaron could do sales. Suddenly, the screen goes blank. A pop-up window appears. Photoshop shut down unexpectedly. Unsaved changes lost. Report problem? I click Don't Report and shut down the computer. In the kitchen, I crawl on my hands and knees with a rag and cleaner, polishing the floor to a sheen. Jay Leno, David Letterman, and Jerry Seinfeld take turns telling me jokes as I click through late-night TV shows while Jack eats. I'm hoping the sound will drown out the maddening barrage of thoughts and images spinning in my mind. There's an ants-in-the-pants feeling under my skin, keeping me from getting comfortable. I can hardly wait for Jack to finish so I can put him back to bed. I'm not myself tonight. I'm a woman from five years ago. A woman I hoped to never encounter again. Opening the door to our bedroom, I'm surprised to see Aaron wide awake, reading a book. I get ready for bed and pull up the covers. The fall air is thick with heat, but even though Aaron has kicked his portion of the comforter onto my side of the bed, doubly insulating me, I can't stop shaking. I tighten my muscles to keep the convulsions from disturbing Aaron. It isn't exactly like being cold, it's more like being absent of heat. Something in me is missing and all I can do is shake for the emptiness. Hadn't we figured this out already? Hadn't I nipped it? Not only am I getting out once a week, I am working. I dress up in business attire with styled hair and makeup and speak with adults. Each month, a paycheck arrives with my name on the payee line. The question of whether I possess brains or ability to run a business has been settled. My savoir faire has been proven, has it not? One could argue that when it comes to advertising sales, I have outperformed Aaron. Wasn't it being stuck at home that had driven me crazy after Kate? The shaking escalates. I'm an Eskimo in an earthquake. Staying in bed is not an option. I can't be next to Aaron. Out of bed, I realize that I can't stay here in this bedroom. I can't be anywhere. Not in this house. Not in this existence. My life doesn't fit anymore, like I've put two legs into one pant leg and can't move forward until it's fixed. I don't know where to go. I only know that I cannot stay. Aaron sits up watching me tie the laces on the running shoes I've brought out from the closet. Please don't leave. We have learned by hard experience how not to deal with these episodes, so we talk for a while. Do you need to get out more? he asks. I'm out of the house every day, I answer. I just don't feel good. Tonight, talking doesn't help. I'm a ticking time bomb and neither of us knows how to disable me. I have to go. I know you want to help, but we both know you can't, and staying here only makes me more frustrated. Aaron's face asks a thousand silent questions. He witnesses me lifting the car keys from the dresser, neither blind nor resistant to the sequence of events, His eyes show plain enough that he doesn't like the situation, doesn't like me leaving, 
doesn't like not having the answer that fixes everything. But what surprises me most is that he lets me go, and that I let him let me go. Outside my neighborhood is quiet. Melissa, the night owl, has long since walked her dogs and smoked her bedtime cigarette. Rolling gray clouds move in front of the moon. My body is trembling as I start the ignition and back out of the driveway. This is not a Thelma and Louise copycat game. In my core, there is no desire to drive off a cliff or crash into a barrier going 90 miles per hour. Though my chest houses an explosive device, my mind remains connected to at least one thread of control. This is not a prison break, an escape from my life. This is a search to find how to remove the ticking bomb without detonating me in the process. Can someone please show me how to be in my life? Each turn of the steering wheel is an evaluation of my options. The emergency room? No, they will pump me full of drugs, lock me away, take my children. I don't want to be numbed to be a drug-altered version of me. The police station? No, the police would have to notify Child Protective Services. Another option is to drive for a while, hoping the fuse on the dynamite peters out. I need help. This is not me driving away from help. This is me driving toward help. But where to go? I need somewhere safe. I need to talk with someone who is neutral and non-judgmental. Someone who isn't perfect. No, someone who isn't afraid of being seen as imperfect. I need someone who has a messy, chaotic, mistake-filled life and who's okay with people knowing that. I need Amanda. Chapter 27, Midnight Visit Amanda used to teach Sunday school at church. She made the New Testament real and applicable in today's world, as if Jesus and the disciples could stop by Burger King and pick up a Whopper on their way to the Sea of Galilee, except on Fridays when they would order a fish sandwich. Amanda wasn't afraid to be flawed. While the rest of us sat properly dressed in our Sunday best with pasted-on smiles, Amanda told stories about blowing up and launching a garbage can at her husband. One Friday, I'd invited Amanda and Derek for a couple's dinner and game night at our house. About the time we expected them to ring our doorbell, she telephoned to say they wouldn't be coming because she and Derek were in the middle of having the quote-unquote war of the century. Her words exactly. I felt embarrassed that, in a moment of weakness, she'd spilled a secret about her marriage she would regret later. At church the next Sunday, I expected her to avoid me out of shame. But she walked right up and poured her friendly, non-judgmental hello all over me. Several years ago, she and Derek moved into a new house and started going to a church building closer to their new neighborhood. Considering my lack of geographical sense, combined with the fact that I've only been to her new house one time before, it's nothing short of miraculous that I drive straight here. Her house is completely dark. The entire street is silent. No stray dogs, no cars, no teenagers hanging on the corner. I question my decision to come. We don't have what you'd call a knock-once-and-come-on-in relationship, especially after midnight. Turning off my headlights, I realize it's been several years since I've spoken to her. Maybe she won't remember me. You're where? Laya asks when I call. She's going to think you're certified crazy. My mother raised eight kids, ran a farm, bottled her own fruit, and never cried a day in her life. 
How did I end up parked in someone's driveway after midnight wearing pajamas? What are you going to do, ring the doorbell? Laya asks. And what will you say? Hi, Amanda. I happen to be in the neighborhood, so I thought I'd stop by. I climb out of the car and shut my door as quietly as possible, even though I'm planning to ring the bell and wake them up. No sane person would knock on someone's door this late, but as confused as my mind tends to be, I feel absolute certainty I'm in the right place. My first knock is soft. Hopefully Amanda is a light sleeper. Maybe she'll happen to be walking by the front door just now. No one answers. The next knock is a bit louder. My finger starts to compress the doorbell button. Then I pull back, anticipating how loud the bell will echo in the solitude. I imagine lights flicking on in surrounding houses, dogs barking, men appearing on their lit doorsteps with shotguns, and Amanda having to come out and apologize to her neighbors for the disturbance from her special friend. As much as I want to, as much as I need to, I can't ring the doorbell. The tips of my tennis shoes rock up and down on the front step and look oddly out of place with my pajamas, the same way I look oddly out of place hovering at a door in the middle of the night. So, to the emergency room? I'm turning to leave when I hear a voice coming from above and behind me. Who are you? The voice asks. A man's head looms in the darkness about ten feet to my left, lit aglow from a street lamp. Unblinking eyes bore into me. What are you doing? The head asks. It takes a moment to get my bearings and realize that Amanda's neighbor is looking over his fence, which is tall enough that only his head shows above it. Um, I was just, I mean... My desperation must show on my face because the man says, Are you okay? The head turns to take a puff from a cigarette. This complete stranger perceives what those close to me miss, that I am not well. I was coming to see Amanda, but it looks like they are all asleep, so I'll come back another time. My feet shuffle back toward my car. Hey, he calls out. Are you okay? There's no telling how long he had been watching me, but his eyes tell me that he is not going to let me get in my car and drive away until he gets a satisfactory answer. My brain is too tired to generate a believable lie, so I tell the truth. I know Amanda from church, and I need to talk to her. I tried knocking, but nobody answered, and I don't want to ring the doorbell and wake up the kids. Do you want me to call her? He asks. I don't have their phone number, my arms shrug. I have it. He disappears into his house. Remarkable. I don't have any of my neighbor's phone numbers. My legs have made a dozen pivots, like an army private practicing about face, trying to decide if it's not too late to back out of the whole thing when he returns. Derek answered. He's coming down to open the door. Thank you. I mean it. Deadbolts unlock on the other side, and a wedge of space opens, revealing half of Derek's face, nose, and one eye, searching to identify the form standing on his doorstep at this hour. Hi, I say weakly. I'm sorry to wake you so late. I tried to knock quietly, but no one answered, and the neighbor saw me and offered to call you. The words rush out, running together, and I'm trying not to let my voice crack. Is Amanda awake? The door opens wider. Come in! Amanda yawns behind Derek. She is the brightest, most bubbly, most energetic person I've ever met, and I somehow expected she would even be bright and energetic in her sleep. Coming was a bad idea. 
Come in, she says again. She moves pillows and pats a seat for me on her couch before she finally appears to realize who I am. Malia, what's up? Is there anything I can do? Derek asks, wondering his place in all of this. Would you call Aaron and tell him I'm here? At the mention of Aaron's name, Derek places my face. He dials as I recite the cell number. I listen while Derek has a conversation with my husband about me while I'm sitting in the room. He says he's glad you're here. Derek gives Amanda a look before going upstairs, and I have the impression they've danced this routine before. Is it possible I'm not the only woman who has turned up in pajamas and tennis shoes on their doorstep after midnight? Malia, did you just have a baby? Amanda asks. And I realize again how long it's been since we've talked to each other. So why did I think of coming here? What's going on? She prompts. I... What are the words? Do you have postpartum depression? The question doesn't sound accusatory coming from her. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't feel depressed. Mostly, I am tired. My doctor asked if I wanted Wellbutrin, but my family has strange reactions to medication. I'm afraid a drug will make me worse. Amanda once announced to the whole Sunday school class that she and Derek kiss her Prozac bottle every morning. At the time, I felt embarrassed for her, but she related the fact as if she were confessing that she dislikes broccoli or has overdue library books. We talk a long while. If Amanda is eager to get back to bed, she doesn't let on. I don't want happiness from a bottle. I don't want life from a bottle. I want the real thing, not an artificial substitute. The medicine does not make me feel fake. It allows me to be the real me. I nod. Amanda is the polar opposite of fake. I don't want to be dependent on a drug. Malia, if you were diabetic, would you refuse insulin? She asks. The more we talk, the better I feel. The threat of explosion has been diffused. The drumming in my chest has softened to a regular rhythm. Breath flows past my throat without constriction. Thank you. I'd better let you get back to bed. I stand to leave. Promise you'll make an appointment to see your doctor and then call me. Amanda gives me a hug. That doesn't mean you have to take medicine, but go find out more. I promise. Before getting in my car, I look at the fence. No one is there. Thank you, I say to the space where the head had been earlier. I don't know who he is or why he was looking over his fence at that hour, but he saved my life. On the drive home, I marvel how therapeutic it felt, sitting on Amanda's couch, putting words to the dust storm in my brain. She didn't make me feel crazy. She made my neurosis feel normal. The agitation, the ticking time bomb is gone. A peaceful exhaustion settles over me. At home, Aaron is in bed, but he's not asleep. You okay? He asks. Yeah. I take a breath to be sure. I feel better. In the morning, Laya asks if I'm worried that Amanda is on the phone with someone from church gossiping away about the crazy visit she had last night. What if she uses you as an example in a Sunday school lesson? Laya speaks as if word getting out would be more of an embarrassment to her than to me. Amanda won't tell a soul. At this moment, I picture her kissing the garbage can mark on Derek's forehead before he leaves for work, and this image makes me feel hopeful. Amanda has been where I am, and she came out okay on the other side. In fact, this morning I feel so much better, 
No crawling skin, no blood ready to boil, no mental tornado. The calling Dr. Woods' office seems absurd, but Amanda made me promise. My message on the answering machine has barely disconnected when the phone rings in my hand with the nurse practitioner returning my call. She talks to me for a long time and won't let me hang up until she knows I won't harm myself or Jack and have agreed to come into the office. At the appointment, she, like Dr. Woods, offers a prescription for Wellbutrin. I'm nervous about medication, I tell her, and want to wait and see if things improve on their own. Laya says that hard work is the best way to cure depression. So, if I keep working hard and this goes away, then I'll know it was depression. If I work hard and this doesn't go away, then I'll know there must be something more seriously wrong with me than depression. This is my plan as Erin and I work our way through the November and December issues of the magazine. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to these free audio samples from Lies of the Magpie. If you haven't yet left a review on Amazon for the book Lies of the Magpie, will you take a minute and do that? I certainly appreciate it. I hope you have a great week and I will see you back here next time.